you set a culture for the team that you have, and then you're going to break your own culture. The team's going to break it, you're going to break it. And then you reset a new culture or design a new culture. So I feel you almost like keep upgrading your culture. That's AJ Yadav, the founder and CEO of Rumi, the leading marketplace for shared housing and apartments. Before diving into tech startups, AJ built several small businesses before startups were more of a thing. He then built an early MVP for Rumi using a Tumblr blog, Google Forms, and a lot of hustle. Rumi was bootstrapped two years before AJ was able to raise some funding. What AJ is talking about is the process he's had to go through at different stages of building the company, continually recreating the culture that is driving the platform forward. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today, we're speaking with AJ Yadav, the founder and CEO of Rumi, the leading marketplace for shared housing and apartments. AJ has built several companies before Rumi, which was bootstrapped for the first two years and has raised over $6 million to date. AJ shares how he approached building the platform in the early days from Tumblr and Google Forms MVP to building the first version of the mobile app himself. Today, Rumi has acquired a few other startups in the same industry and has a remote team of over 40 people. AJ joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it was like building companies in the early days of the web, how he approaches fundraising, what it's been like building and scaling a marketplace, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, AJ. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Tyler. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on the show to learn more about your career as an entrepreneur and building Rumi. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, sure. I, um, I grew up in India and I moved to States roughly 13 years ago, did computer science undergrad. I went to NYIT, never finished college, not on purpose, it just happened. So how did your passion for tech and startups develop? So I just, I actually started my first company when I was 17, and that's when I moved to New York. And I remember one of my buddies asked me, hey, you know, can you build a website for me just to showcase a portfolio? And I'm like, yeah, I can build a basic website. I built the first website. I went back home to India and hired a team of two engineers that are, you know, they're going to build websites now for other people. <laughs> so kind of happened naturally. I always love building things, and uh, I ended up starting a second company after that, and now finally Rumi. So I've always been building things and solving problems. That's really cool. So what were some of those first few companies that you built? So I started something similar to Craigslist in India. And I was still going back and forth, traveling a lot to New Delhi. Uh, we were trying to solve problems of like, you know, buying and selling stuff online. You know, I was using Craigslist. I thought maybe we can do something better. I can do something in India. Why not build it myself? So I ended up building that company. That was my second company. And it did really well. And now building Ruby. So based on your experience building your first few companies, what were some of the biggest challenges that you had to face? So both the companies did really well, actually. I call them like small businesses, not startups, because I never knew what a startup is until Rumi or Lean Startup or maybe 2013. So we were making a lot of money, actually. I made really good money from the first business, building websites. So we built basic websites for five to six page up to a full-blown project, a marketplace, let's say $100,000. I was just like 17, managed a team of 35 people. Definitely a lot of work 
to manage the team, structure, operations. There's not a lot of technology back in the days. So we had to do a lot of work and just written and notes and communicate all the stuff. It was hard. Everything was difficult. Even technology was difficult. Managing servers, they're just box, you know, you buy the boxes and you manage your server by yourself. There's no dedicated servers or there's no cloud, you know. So all this stuff was difficult. Internet was slow as hell, uh, all this stuff. And um, not easy access to talent. It was pretty tough. And um, second company, the Craigslist copy, uh, it did really well as well. We made money by selling local ads. So if you search for, let's say, Packers and Moors in New Delhi, you'll see the top results were like paid, sponsored. I just didn't know how to scale those businesses. I think that was my issue. I had no mentors, no advisors, just didn't know anyone in the startup world. I had no idea. If I knew, I would have definitely sold them. They were worth selling. <laughs> yeah, I would have made some decent money or you know, grew those businesses to, be, to make them really big. Just didn't know. So what ended up happening to those first few companies? And if they didn't scale, did you just end up winding them down? Yep, wind them down. <laughs> All the little businesses, right? Either you make money or you don't. You know, then you just kill them. Yeah, absolutely. So was that the start of your career as an entrepreneur? Or did you have any other jobs? Um, I really wish I could tell you a lot about my jobs. But um, before starting my first company, I was actually uh, kind of the same time actually working on it, bootstrapping it. I was a front desk manager at a hotel in Brooklyn. So I used to uh, do night shift, just be at the front desk, you know, help people with the rooms. And I would also clean up rooms sometimes at night times too and help out my guests if they had any problems. That was the only job I've ever had. Since then, I've been just building companies and working for myself. That's awesome. So now, as you mentioned, you're currently the founder and CEO of Rumi. So can you tell us a bit more about Rumi and what really motivated you to start it? So Rumi is a marketplace to help people find shared housing, rent rooms and find roommates. And Rumi kind of happened in a very organic way. In 2013, I was looking for my next apartment to share with roommates. And I was using Craigslist and I was using Facebook and also asking my friends at school. And I was like, why is it so hard? to rent a room or why is it so hard to find a roommate you know if i have a room to rent and just really felt the pain and uh, end up starting the company myself i bootstrapped it for two years and um, since then it's been an amazing experience wow that's incredible two years is a really long time when you're bootstrapped so what was it like building the first version of the platform how did you approach growth so in 2013 when i was working on the idea i was also a mentor at lean startup machine in new york so I was you know, helping design of you know, entrepreneurs starting and testing their hypothesis and ideas. So I use the same approach. So I built Rumi on Google Docs form, a Tumblr account, so the blog, and a Twitter account. So what I did is I would go and ask my friends and ask people if they have any rooms to rent. I would reach out to people in Craigslist if, they have, if they're open to sharing their listing with me. And I would ask them for information. I would take the information and create a post on Tumblr page. So every blog was like a posting of that room they were renting. Uh, rent, you know, deposit, you know, what they're looking for in their next roommate and a description about the apartment and pictures, all this stuff. And then I would attach a link on the bottom of that page, the Tumblr blog. If you like it, you can apply here. And that was like a Google Docs form where people can apply to that room. And then I would sit all day on Twitter and uh, search keywords like roommates or graduating school or moving to New York and roommate finder. And if I see anyone tweeting about those things, and if they're moving to New York, I'll ask them, hey, here's an awesome apartment. Do you want to check it out? And that was the first version of Rumi before I actually uh, end up building an app for that. Wow, that's incredible. A lot of hustle involved in that. So what was the response like? There must have been enough validation to justify building you know, more of a site. 
So I had, I think I remember over a thousand users probably using that Tumblr page and Google Docs form and using Twitter. That's when I decided that, hey, I think it's going to work actually. It's, it's something people need. So why not create the first iPhone app? So I ended up learning how to create iPhone apps and build the first iPhone app with help from friends and some contractors. That's incredible. So was that all there was to it? Was it just, you know, putting up a Tumblr site with some Google Docs and sharing the link across Twitter for the first thousand people? Or was there more to it than that? Man, it was extremely hard. <laughs> you know, I was taking classes online, teaching myself how to make iPhone apps. So it's definitely very difficult. And I try to do it as basic as I can, try to find a designer who can design it and ask for friends for help, go online or like, you know, Odesk or freelancer, trying to find someone who can help me out as well. So there was a lot of work. And a few months, actually, it took me a few months to build the first app. Definitely not easy at all, but I'm glad I was able to put it together. It was fairly basic. All you can do is post your room and apply to your room. And that's all I did. That's really cool. And so you mentioned that you bootstrapped Rumi for the first two years. What was it like bootstrapping a marketplace startup? What were some of the lessons you learned about building both the supply and demand sides? So bootstrapping, uh, it was a... <laughs> Definitely something I wasn't expecting. It happened and I couldn't pay my rent in my, I was living in a studio, studio apartment for a few months and I, I couldn't afford it. I ended up deciding to move in with one of my friends and then he also had one of his other friends. So there's three friends living in a studio uh, in Queens and that was my launch pad. You know, I, I was there for 18 months and uh, my friend helped me, you know, stay there and help me with some bills. You know, I paid him back finally. <laughs> that was a good moment. And I built Rumi while I was staying in that shared apartment. And um, I think for me, it was just everything was difficult. But I knew that, you know, if I can get the app working from the, the Google form or Tumblr page to the app. And I was focusing, focusing on a lot on like customers. So I made sure that every customer I would talk to them, make sure what they're looking for. So early stage to go supply was fairly simple for me. What I did, I would ask people, hey, tell me what you're looking for and I'm going to find these places for you. So I'm not going to put them on Rumi. I'm just going to email you these places and see what you like. Because I knew that I, I, I can't go online and just get listings from somewhere like that. Because the people who were searching were also the people were looking to rent out the room. I just wanted enough traction on the platform that people believe that this is something real and I would start posting my listings in Ruby. So I would go online on, on Facebook and then Craigslist. And I would find the best listings based on what they were looking for and then send them the links for those rooms. So they were still going on Craigslist and they're still applying on Craigslist. But they appreciated that I was willing to help them because I was still taking the pain point, right? The pain away of going online and searching the best places for you. They would just tell me what they need and I would help them find that place. That's amazing that you took that type of MVP approach going from an idea to building out the platform. Yeah, definitely grateful to do that. Actually, it was very exciting. So what has it been like growing the Rumi platform from an expansion perspective? It's been like a lot of unknowns, you know, when you start a company, you have no idea what to do, right? You ask yourself, do I stay in one city Do I expand to a lot of cities? And for us, it was about let's stay in one city for as long as we can. And we were in New York for the longest time possible. And then we were like, you know, let's just try expanding to more cities and help more people. And uh, so we took that approach, extremely hard. You got to go to each city and do partnerships and figure out the market and maybe do some marketing campaigns, all this stuff. It requires a lot of resources. So we did that for 20 plus cities. Uh, we did it very successfully. And um, so we're now live in 24 cities in US and Canada. I wouldn't recommend to anyone to, to expand uh, early on. I think we did it and um, somehow it worked out, but I would stay in one city if possible. Yeah, for sure. So over the course of the last few years, Rumi has raised almost $6 million over three rounds. 
what has it been like raising investment at various stages of the company's growth? I would say the hiring is the, the most difficult thing I've ever done, but I think fundraising is the second one. And so I failed almost 350 times before I raised my first check. So everyone rejected us. I was the only one solo founder, bootstrapping the company, had barely any traction, really couldn't convince people that this is going to be a big company and it's going to be a massive problem. So I was learning about fundraising while I was getting rejected. So it took me almost 10 months, but then I met this angel really an angel and he was like you know what i think you can do it and here's ten thousand dollars and then since then we've raised now total six million dollars as a seed round it's been an exciting journey but the way it worked for us is every time you raise capital you're pitching your investors or you're making promises i since i got rejected so many times i knew that i have to set the right expectations and meet those expectations to keep raising money because if I have good terms with my investors they'll definitely see that wow this is a great company I want to invest more but they'll also be willing to help me get more people new investors on board and that's what we have been doing. So you and Rumi have also acquired a pair of other startups what has it been like going through the acquisition process on the other side of the table and what are some of the challenges that come after an acquisition? For us, acquisition was all about learning. And so let's say there's smaller companies or similar companies in the same space and same market. And we were like, you know what? We only know what we know. How do we learn more about the market? How are other people trying to do it? And of course, I keep, I mean, I have a good relationship with other founders. And it is all about what if we can acquire them? So some companies were reaching out to us. Uh, some of them were really good. And we were like, you know, we, we, we can definitely get some users and listings. and But also more than that is understand how they were able to grow that company. Uh, with their own resources. And I was always curious to know that. And so we can learn more and be better at what we do. The right timing and opportunity, we end up doing that. It was a lot of work, I think, negotiating. And uh, the most work I had never expected was the, the legal work. Definitely a lot of back and forth. Uh, not easy at all to manage those expectations. But um, I'm, I'm super excited that we were able to put it off. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as current marketing channel and growth tactics, how are you currently growing the marketplace? I mean, I'm very excited that we're still, I think I can say, all of our traffic on both sides, over 65% is still organic. I feel very proud to say that. So we are spending money. We definitely do subway ads now, test Facebook and Google and podcasts and all of those stuff. Uh, that's for testing and definitely growing the company. But it is still organic. And uh, we are now trying to partner with some large landlords. And that's our, our new strategy to grow our su supply side. But uh, demand is still all about uh, acquisition, uh, offline, online, paid, or organic. So what have been some of the biggest challenges of going from a bootstrapped startup to a venture-backed company that's you know growing quickly? For me, it's been always, you know, everything is new to me. And um, I have never been to this stage with this much capital and people. So we're now 39 people. So it's not just me anymore. And I think challenges are to make sure that we're all on the same page for our goals, for acquisition. And how do you really make sure that we are not like burning our cash? Because you, you definitely have the money, but you always need more and more capital. And you can end up making some big mistakes, some very expensive mistakes. So I still really focus on organic. We, we, we want to make sure that we're spending our resources and time to strengthen our organic channels and then keep testing and whatever works we double down and it's almost like you know you have to always do better so let's say if we acquire our customers at like 10 bucks as an example then how can you bring that down to seven but still maintain the same quality 
like cheap acquisition is always not the best acquisition. How do you have segments and people based on the supply and demand ratio? So that's been very challenging for us and to make sure that we just keep getting better without burning the cash. So how do you go about doing that? What's the process and what are some of the strategies involved in maintaining the quality of a $10 acquisition but spending less for it? The way we've done it is uh, tracking everything. I think one of the hardest things is to track almost everything on your product and, and the customers and everything, all the actions they take. So we've been definitely doubling down our efforts to make sure, let's say we acquire a customer for 10 bucks. Uh, what is the end result of that? Are they posting a room? Are they applying to listings? What kind of listings? Can they afford more? Is the room more expensive? So kind of like connecting all these dots has been painful but also a really good experience for us because now we can improve and do better. So we keep doing all these things, tracking better and making sure that the right type of supply is matched with the right type of demand. And that's been our core focus in the company so far. So were you automating that tracking right away? And if so, what tools were you using? Or did you start by doing everything manually? So we have tools now. So we have been using, you know, you can use Branch. I think I would say deep linking has been one of the best things for us. You can deep link a campaign from Facebook. So you know that, okay, spending money to acquire the customer. But deep link, once they sign up, you can track the end result. Every single event that happened, or you can target a particular event. And then you know, okay, this is what exactly happened. On the other side, we are now recording every single event on the platform. So we can match those events with the user profile. Even if I know that, okay, I paid, let's say 10 bucks for this user, then we can track all the actions. And once you know all the actions, you know, okay, maybe it's a good user, it's a bad user, maybe how to improve and get better users that actually match with that, that goal. So yeah, I would say branch, Facebook pixel, that's very, very important. Using Periscope data, we use that now to analyze the data in the company and some other tools. That's amazing. So you briefly mentioned that your team is about 40 people. So how do you approach balancing culture on growth? I'm still learning. <laughs> you know, I've never managed a team of 40 people before. The way I look at it is like culture is something that's never set. I've seen this a few times now already. And I think you set a culture for the team that you have, and then you're going to break your own culture. The team's going to break it, you're going to break it. And then you reset a new culture or design a new culture. So I feel you almost like keep upgrading your culture. So almost 40 people now feels we have to bring more structure in the company. Managers need to do a better job. We want to make sure that everyone feels empowered that they can do anything they want to and they can add value in any way they want to. So it's not like limiting people from entering any meetings or discussions or asking any questions. So we keep it like very free, free flow discussion in the company. Anyone can walk into any meeting. Anyone can ask any question. People can join any teams to do whatever they want to. They can change their roles. So I feel that's been the culture we've been building. But now since we're getting a bigger team, we're trying to add the structure to our company. And so it's like building a brand new culture and how we see things. Uh, we're also becoming very much focused on goals and data and all, all the other things we're empowering our employees by learning SQL. You know, a lot of companies prefer, just an example, have data scientist teams and have tools. We also uh, prefer having a data scientist and have all these tools. But I also believe that building a data culture is all about when you empower every single employee to pull the data and do whatever they need to. So give them access to data and then teach them how to really use the data. So we now have people who are learning SQL commands you know, to use a database and get the data directly from there. So it's been shifting. It's always been shifting. I'm just learning. <laughs> That's really cool. Is everyone based in New York? So we've been a remote company from day one. My first unofficial hire was uh, someone remote in Mexico, actually. So now we have teams in, um, in, in India. We have office now. We have Atlanta. We have Texas. And we have some team members in Eastern Europe as well. But most of them are in New York. So over 20 people are in New York. That's very exciting. So what's next for Rumi? So for us, it's all about taking over New York market. So we really believe that we have to do an amazing job to help people find housing and shared housing and roommates in New York. 
uh, if you think about moving from a month up to 12 months, how do you think about Rumi as the default platform? And we want to do it right here in New York. So that's the biggest challenge that we have. And that requires building supply and demand at the same time at a very fast pace and also create that trust. So Rumi is a very trusted platform. When people think about Rumi, they think of trust. Uh, so how do you really make sure that we, we do a better job and better job and keep improving that value, that experience that we are providing to our customers? Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool and exciting to hear about. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys continue to do in New York and, you know, then what's next. So we'll have to stay tuned. Definitely. Yeah, I'll let you guys know. So you mentioned a few tools so far, but generally with your experience working through the Lean Startup Machine or other tools and frameworks for becoming a better leader, what are some of the most impactful resources that you've come across recently? Um, one thing that's really helped me is just, just spending time with my employees. So I would say coffee chats or one-on-ones or do whatever it takes. But I think even though 40 people seems a lot, I think I think I can manage it. And I think a lot of people can manage that. So I think just spending time with the employees is very, very important because they, they might have issues, they might have concerns, they might have feedback for you, and they might have some suggestions and new ideas and all this stuff. So you want to spend time with them to make yourself available and, and, and accessible so they feel that they can talk to you. And I think I've been doing that a lot now and you just gotta allow them to give the feedback it can be anything and uh, you take that feedback with you and improve that's something i do a lot now i've also been big on asana a task management tool and then slack of course every startup uses slack but i think if you can really manage a task in a, in a written way and everyone knows who's working on what it really helps you get some stuff done so how do you manage that between the team in new york and the remote team do you slack or skype with them yeah, Slack, Skype. We also bring him uh, here to New York every three to six months. That's a great way to spend time with them. Uh, I really believe in that spending time with my team is very, very important. And I want to keep doing that. So it's working really well. That's cool. So do you have any final thoughts or words of advice for other entrepreneurs out there? Only thing I can say is uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur or you are an entrepreneur, you want to start something, it's not going to be easy. Um, I think everyone talks about how good it is and sexy and all the amazing news and articles and how you become a big celebrity, all that stuff. But the reality is that it's going to be a very, very long journey. And uh, I've been on this for four. I think I have been working for myself for the past 12 years now. And I feel, damn, I got to learn a lot more and do a better job. So I think, I don't know, maybe 10 more years before I really make it. <laughs> you know, so I think it's going to be a long journey and people should just expect that to be ready for that. That's great advice. AJ, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. And I really had a lot of fun. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us a line, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.